One of the reasons that I am honored, glad, privileged to be here for this event of installation is that it gives me the chance to be a part of something that is vastly more important than everything happening in Washington, D.C. And I say that with very carefully chosen words, because I totally believe it. Literally, no exaggeration, what is going on here is more significant, more important than almost everything that happens in the federal government, not to mention the state. 36 days ago, Donald Trump was installed as the President of the United States. Today, Jason Redberg is installed as the pastor of this church. Since then, the president has been meeting with people, most of whom and most of whose influence may be captivating to the media, but who will have little effect on eternity. And I, for my part, have very little interest in doing anything that doesn't have any effect on eternity. The people of Redeemer who are going to meet now week in and week out under the ministry of Jason Redberg are marked in ways that make you far more significant than most of the people that the president meets with. There is no other gathering in the world like this gathering of Christian people for worship. It is unique in the world. And you need to feel that at this point in your life. You are a people of God's own possession. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to belong to God. God. You are destined to become like the Son of God. You were bought with divine blood. You are acquitted and accepted before the throne of the universe. You are a new creation on the earth. You are indwelt by the spirit of the creator of the universe. You have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. You are called to eternal glory. You are heirs of the world and all that it in it, all that's in it is yours. You are appointed to judge angels. You are 
destined to rule with Christ on his throne. And you will live forever. There is no other gathering like this anywhere except in Christian churches where believers in Jesus assemble to worship God. It is incomparable, stunning, breathtaking. It makes you tremble if you're awake. Most of you aren't. I'm usually not because we spend our times listening to other voices than that voice. That was just quotes from the Bible. I'm glad this church is called Redeemer Bible Church. That's a really good combination. Not only that about you, but the word, the word under which you will now gather week in and week out, applied to you for the direction of your souls is infinitely, I choose the word carefully, infinitely more authoritative than all presidential directives, put together the word of God in Scripture that will come and break over you week after week is infinitely wiser Deeper, sweeter, purer, stronger, more effective, more transforming, more durable, more lasting, more satisfying than all the directives and all the legislation that will come out of Washington for the next four years. Every week. And not only that, but as you gather as the eternally eternally loved people of God, under the Word of God, in the power of the Spirit of God, you will, in fact, in reality, in this room, meet God. God will come to you. There is a unique and manifest presence of the living God reserved for his family gathered in worship. I know whereof I speak personally. He will be enthroned uniquely on your praises He will reveal himself to you as you love him together in this room. He will heal broken marriages as a husband and a wife singing together in the presence of God feel the impossible become possible. He will humble the most arrogant sinner who walks through these doors, he will humble him and he will walk out after meeting God in worship as a little child. He will shine his light 
on your utter confusion as you walk in, and you will leave knowing what way to go. He will catch you falling over the cliff of hopelessness as you walk in here. And by the end of these services, you will feel ground under your feet. He will convict you of the ugliness of a hidden habit that is quietly destroying your life and you will walk out after meeting him under the word, by the Spirit, in worship, not resolving to be free, but free. I wonder if your expectations are that high. This is what he does when his people gather in worship. In other words, today we're standing at at the front end of a new chapter in the life of this church, and I want you to have a fresh realization of who you are as everlasting, invincible people of God and what the Word of God is that will be heralded over you week after week and what it means that God Almighty will show up here in worship through his word, in song, in prayer, by his spirit, doing supernatural things that you thought were impossible. So all of that to say thank you that I can be a part of this. Because I would... 10,000 times rather be here than talking with Donald Trump in the White House. No exaggeration. I wouldn't even go if he asked, which he won't. <laughs> or the vice president, good man perhaps that he is, I hope and pray. I'm not interested. I'm interested in this for all those several dozen reasons and many, many more. This is where it's at. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear. So it seemed to me that as I spoke to you, I should address the issue of the relationship between a church and her pastor, her leaders, specifically between you and Pastor Jason. So I ask you to take your Bible and to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to focus on one verse, verse 17. If you're using one of those, I think, Bibles that are lying around there, it's 1010, page 1010. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I love this verse profoundly shaped the way I thought about ministry for years and years, and it was glorious to be back in it all day yesterday. <clears throat> Obey your leaders. Are you with me? Verse 17 of chapter 13 of Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for 
They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now notice, even though this verse is addressed to you, the people, it's really clear that it carries instructions for leaders and how they're to work, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, because it's telling you how to help them do it. That's what it says, right? Let's Read it again. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You, this is a very loose translation here, the sentence just keeps on going, in order that they might do it with joy. So you're supposed to be responsive in such a way as your leaders would be watching over you with joy, not with groaning. So, leaders are supposed to watch over the souls of the people, and the church is to submit to them in that care. And if I had time, it would be so valuable to dig into the nature of that pastoral watchfulness and the nature of that obedience and submission. And I am going to do that a tiny bit at the end. But I have felt so compelled to go for the heart of this verse. Because I think if you go for the heart and the essence of the relationship between a people and her pastors, if you go for the heart and the essence, all the possible abuses of obedience and submission, and all the possible abuses of watch, care, go away. If you get the middle, if you get the deep, central heart and essence of the verse. So I'm going to focus on the central dynamic between the leaders and the people, and the center is joy. I wonder if you see it that way. Let them, people, let them do this with joy. You see that in the middle of the verse? Let them do this with joy, not groaning. This is stunning, and this is probably more profound than we realize. It certainly feels that way to me. And I pray that in the years to come, Redeemer will be marked by this stunning profundity that I'm going to try to deal with the next few minutes. So on the one hand, this is a clear word to pastors, to Jason and the elders. When they read this, they must realize that to be a faithful, loving Biblical, fruitful pastor, they must pursue their joy. 
if Jason and the elders become indifferent to their own joy in ministry, they will not be helpful to you. Now, make, I just want you to see this. Get your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, listen really carefully. Because I'm not making this up. God Almighty is saying this. Let's read it again. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In order that, literally, in order that they may do this, or let them do this, with joy, not with groaning, here it comes, for that, that is, if they did it with groaning and not joy, that would be of no advantage to you. So, a pastor hearing this realizes if I groan through the ministry, if the burdens and the difficulties of the ministry, which are many, if I am not sustained in them with joy in this work, I will be of no advantage to this people. That's what it says. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really important. A pastor reads this and he has to know I'll I'll be no advantage to them, I'll be no good for them, I'll be no blessing to them, I'll be no help to them. If I drift into an oh, poor me, burdened, how hard is this work? Instead of, I got the best job in the world. In spite of all the pain. And as he ponders, he realizes, in order to love my people, to serve them, be of advantage to them, I must devote myself to being happy in this work. I cannot let my heart be defeated in this work. I can't act as though emotions are superfluous. As though I just need to do my duty here. Show up with a plan at the meeting and bring a message that's faithful to the Word Sunday morning. Whether I have any particular feelings of joy or not, just do the work. You can't read this text and go there. You can't just say, I do my duty, because this text says, joy is your duty. Because love is your duty. And you can't love without it. That's what it says. You can't love without it. Love is your duty. If you try to do this ministry dutifully without pursuing your joy in it as part of your duty, this people will gain no advantage. They will not be loved. 
So, the first thing to see about joy in verse 17 is that it is essential to pastoral faithfulness for the sake of the people. Not optional. And therefore, central to the pastoral calling. Pastors dare not grow weary in the maintenance of their joy. I'm talking authentic joy. You can't fake it, Jason. They'll know. I've seen it happen in churches where pastors sort of catch, we're supposed to be happy, and and they, they try to sound happy. This church is not about fakery. Jesus hates hypocrisy. This will be real, which is why it is so incredibly difficult. Flannery O'Connor said, picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed, because it is a highly dangerous quest. That is so right. George Mueller I love George Mueller, you know, the famous orphanage builder, pastor in Britain 150 years ago, said this, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. (laughs) He continues, The first thing to be concerned about is not how might I serve the Lord? How might I glorify the Lord? But how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. How can that not be implied in verse 17 of Hebrews 13? When the writer says, pastors... If you go about your ministry with groaning and not joy, you will be of no advantage to your people. Now, if that's not striking enough, let's come at it from the side of the people. That was coming at it from the side of leaders. Let's read it again now. And you look for the side of the people. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them, in order that they might do this, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. So from the people's side, your job is to so respond to the leadership of the church that they do their work with joy and not groaning. That's what it says. People, seek the joy of your pastors, respond to them, work with them, so as to minimize their groaning and maximize their joy. Let them do this with joy. Respond to them in order that they may do their work with joy. But here's the striking thing. 
this writer makes explicit why you should do that. So I've just said now that this text says the the vocation of the church is to so respond to the ministry that they have burdens lifted and joy abounding in the ministry. That's what it says. But I left out the last phrase which says, why? Why should you do that? Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for, and I assume this church has been taught that for means because and gives a reason, because that would be of no advantage to you. What an amazing argument. In other words, people of Redeemer, seek the joy of your pastors because if you don't, you won't have joy in their ministry. You won't have advantage from them. Seek their joy for the sake of your joy. How's that sit? So the pastor is seeking his joy, and the people are seeking the pastor's joy because it makes them more joyful So they're seeking their joy. How in the world is this not a prescription for a church full of leaders and people who are a bunch of dysfunctional, self-centered, narcissistic egotists? Pastor, focus on getting yourself happy. People, make him happy so that you can really be happy. We're all in it for ourselves. How's that sit? There is a an answer to why this verse is not designed to produce narcissists. And the answer is that the joy that he is pursuing and the joy that you are pursuing is joy in God. Not his gifts, which are innumerable and glorious, but in God himself when there is plenty of reason to groan. Say that again now. The key for this verse not being the prescription for narcissism, egotism, self centeredness, is that the joy it is commending is joy in God when there are a hundred reasons to groan and He's still enough. Do you want some evidence for that? I would if I were you. Like, you just making that up? The, wor- the, the little phrase, with joy, let them do this with joy, is used only one other time in the book of Hebrews. The, Greek, the little Greek phrase, metakaros, with joy. Let's look at it. Just flip back one page. 
Might be two, I don't know. Chapter 10, verse 34. This is important. It's worth looking at. So I'm, I'm getting my point here from 1034. I'm, I'm, I'm reading 1317 in the light of 1034. Yes, I am. So if you wonder, where'd you get that idea that this joy is joy in God? I, I thought it was joy in late night hospital calls or something like that. Well, there might be some overflow for that. But I like the fact that this little phrase, with joy, has been used. And here we go. Hebrews 10.34. You, you church and, and your leaders, you had compassion on those in prison. And now here it is. With joy, you accepted. Probably translated it ESV joyfully. That's fine. Good translation. Same phrase, though. With joy. You with joy or joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, that's a good reason to groan. You go home today and find get out Christian spray painted all over your house and your furniture thrown out in the front yard and on fire. You're going to respond like this? With joy. You with joy accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here's what ministry looks like for the people and the pastor together. And probably in our day will increasingly look like. Certainly in many parts of the world, it looks more like this than it does here. They identified with the imprisoned Christians, okay? Some had been put in jail, some had not been put in jail, and those who had not been put in jail risked their property and their lives probably to identify, visit, show compassion to those who were in prison, and the result was what they feared, namely, they were plundered. And instead of groaning... They accepted it with joy. And I'm assuming that in chapter 13, verse 17, the writer would simply not tell us to seek the pastor's joy or our joy of a different kind than this, especially since the very same little phrase is used. And where does this joy come from? It tells us in the last part of the verse. Verse 34. You accepted it with joy because you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. So it's, it's better than all, all the stuff you have. It's better than all that stuff. Better than anything in the world. And it's abiding. It lasts forever. So these things are not very good. And so it's better, and these things all go away, and this one doesn't, it's abiding. What's that? Like golf in heaven? No way. No way. This is God. Because it says in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. That's better. Full is better than half. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's abiding 
The only kind of joy that is going to enable that kind of love is joy in God. So let me go back now and state this in three assumptions. I'm arguing that behind verse 17 of of Hebrews 13, there are three assumptions which, if they are true, keep it from being a prescription for a bunch of self-centered, narcissistic egotists all into themselves. Assumption number one, the joy being spoken of in verse 17, the joy that the pastor is to pursue and the people are to pursue for the pastor, for themselves, is joy in God, often in the face of huge earthly losses. Plenty of reason to groan in the ministry and in your life. And this text says, beside the point, your joy isn't in those losses. Your joy isn't in the stuff you just lost. Your joy is in a better and abiding possession. It's joy in God. Assumption number two, to pursue joy in God Not his gifts, but God is to admit that the heart is desperate and can't be satisfied without him, which means it's a humble heart, not a proud, egotistical heart. It is not proud to feel a cavernous emptiness that you know only God can fill. That is not. Pride. To feel a cavernous emptiness that you know only God can feel and therefore you're running to him. That's not what pride does. Pride won't admit the emptiness and if it spots it, believe me, it's not going to an all-authoritative God to be filled. Therefore, you can just put aside the thought that that prescription is a prescription for pride. Assumption number three, to pursue joy in God himself as your supreme treasure and your all-satisfying pleasure exalts the beauty and worth of God, not you. (laughs) Think of it. You're desperate, you're empty, you're helpless, you're hungry. And you're going to grind your teeth with a weapon and pursue joy in him at any cost? Makes him look really good. Really good. I mean, when those folks in chapter 10, verse 34, looked over their shoulder and saw their house being trashed, And started to sing. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Who looked good at that moment? God did. Because he satisfied the soul. So for those three reasons. Those three assumptions. Joy is joy in God. The pursuit of it is not arrogant. It's humble. The pursuit of it doesn't magnify you, it magnifies your treasure. This is not a prescription 
for a community of people absorbed with themselves. It's the opposite. You're absorbed with God. And you're pursuing God. You're loving God. You're being satisfied with God. You're listening to God. You're following God. You're obeying God. You're singing to God. And he's showing up in power and making everything different. So this verse is pleading for a kind of supernatural, spirit-empowered community where the pastors are seeking their joy in God so that they can be of advantage to the people. That is, so that the people might taste and see that the Lord is good. We see it. We see it. There it is. It's right there. We see it. Is satisfying. Look, there it is. We we want them, don't we, Jason, to say, we want the people to say with the psalmist, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Psalm 43, 4. Love that verse. I will go to the altar of God. This is what you say at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. I will go to meet with God's people. No physical altar. Wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is showing up. That's where I want to be. And I will go to meet my exceeding joy. And this text is a call for a supernatural, spirit-empowered community for the people. Understanding That their soul and their life, according to the first part of the verse, their soul and their life is at stake. At stake in finding this joy, this same joy that the pastor is seeking. And so they seek to be joyfully responsive to the pastors so that the advantage will come back on them with more joy in God. I'd love to tell you stories how this worked at Bethlehem. It was so true. It was so true. So, yes, Jason, watch over them. We're almost done. This is my, I'm landing the plane. Jason, watch over them. That is, stay awake. That's what the word means. Stay awake. Be vigilant. Stay awake to the Word of God. Stay awake to Christ. Stay awake to yourself and all your vulnerabilities. Stay awake to the people and all of their needs. And no matter how many reasons there are to groan, and there will be plenty while this world lasts, no matter how many reasons there are to groan, keep yourself satisfied in the beauty and the value of God and all that he is for us in Jesus. Because otherwise, you will be of no advantage to them. And yes, Redeemer, be obedient and submissive to Jason and the elders. Bet you don't like those words. You're Americans, for goodness sakes. 
Let me try to help in two minutes. He's not God. The elders are not God. They are not infallible. Their authority is not absolute. And therefore, your submission and obedience is not absolute. Only God gets absolute obedience and submission. We could show that throughout the New Testament with regard to submission to state, submission to husbands, submission to parents, submission to pastors, you name it. All the structures of submission in the New Testament are relativized by the absolute lordship of Jesus. We know this. But here's the key. This text is written on the assumption, and you have called that man on the assumption that leaders, and he in particular, are going to lift up this Bible and speak the word of God and not man. And as that happens, show your leaders you want that more than anything by being obedient to the word and submissive to those who speak it. And when you do, their joy in God will overflow. <laughs> we love it when people love God's truth. Not us. We're, we're afraid. I mean, healthy pastors are afraid of our authority. And the longer you stay in a place, the more you have. We know that. This is why we love the book. <laughs> if you don't see it, don't believe it. When, when I call for you to be obedient and submissive to your leaders, I mean your leaders under the book. Get that picture on his head. Piper put a book on his head to make a point. I love this man because he's under the book. I'm ready to follow him anywhere to the prison. If he, if he says, let's go to the prison, I'm going to the prison with that man because over the years he has won my confidence by being a man under the book. So you got to be a people of the book. This kind of God-besotted, joy-filled community that I'm trying to describe especially joy in the presence of loss and groaning, that kind of God-besotted, joy-filled community will be explosively attractive in these western suburbs. Because people are hungry for this. They don't know that they're hungry for this. No, they don't. They don't know that they are made for joy in God, which is why their lives aren't working. It's not working. I mean, they, they look squeaky clean, like everything's rosy, but they're not. Their lives aren't working. If you're a Christian, you know unbelievers' lives aren't working. Look how rich they are. 
how their kids are flourishing, how many cars in the driveway, how many cabins they have or boats, how healthy they are. It's not working. It's all going down. And you know this. You're the ones who know this. You know that their hearts are made for God. And they need to see it and taste it. So show them. Let them see it. And as you have grace, then go ahead. Take it to Ireland. Take it to the nations. Take it to the hardest places of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I feel thrilled to be a part of this amazing moment in the life of this church. So excited for Jason and Karen. Excited for this people and thrilled at what impact they're going to have in these suburbs over here on the west side. Oh, God, grant, I pray, that everything that is in this verse that I got right would come true here. If I, if I misstated anything or got it out of whack, fix that in their heads. But, oh, let us not fall short of the heart and key in this text, the essence that joy is essential in ministry because it's essential in life and in eternity. And it's joy in you, humbling your people, exalting your name. I pray that in Jesus' name.